Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and reading Craig's weekly column every Thursday at the Florida Phoenix, floridaphoenix.com, it, it's become a bit of a, a reoccurring nightmare, Craig. We've got <laughs> roads, roads, development, housing, roads, roads, <laughs> development, housing. I, I don't know how you stay on this, this hamster wheel you've been riding for <laughs> 30, 40 years now covering state and, and conservation issues. Well, I mean, look at it this way. There was a, at least there was a preserve there to begin with before they decided they were going to build the I-95 interchange right in the middle of all these wetlands. Mm-hmm. So so there were good things happening until suddenly the bad thing started happening. Well, but, now what, what is the latest bad thing? Well, uh, the DOT wants to put an I-95 interchange right smack dab in the middle of wetlands that feed into Spruce Creek, which is an outstanding Florida waterway. And uh, and which there's a Spruce Creek Preserve and uh, both of those would be damaged by this mm-hmm. interstate uh, interchange being put there. Uh, but the DOT says they have to do it because of all the future developments going to happen. And in fact, a lot of that development is being pursued by ICI Homes which is run by uh, a close advisor of Governor DeSantis. Yeah, this is a, a classic follow the money situation. We're talking about Volusia County in the Daytona Beach area where Craig is referencing this new uh, interchange that the Department of Transportation wants to build at the bidding, essentially, of this individual who is the developer who owns the homes who would benefit by this interchange being put there. So tell us a little bit more about uh, this guy who I was surprised to learn is the Board of Trustee Chair at the University of Florida. Right. And, and according to the Tallahassee Democrat, is the most powerful unelected person in Florida. Who is he? Um, say Maureen Husseini. Uh, he's the he is the chairman, CEO, founder of ICI Homes, uh, or as I preferred to call it in the column, Icky, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Icky Homes. Uh, and, uh, you know, they they need this interchange there for their development to provide people easy access to the new homes they're going to build in the middle of all these wetlands. The they interchange. They need yeah. it. No one else does, but this right. guy the, needs it. The, the interchange would wipe out about 28 acres of wetlands, according to the DOT, but the development around it that would be stimulated by this would wipe out another 7,500 acres of wetlands, mm-hmm. uh, all of which, you know. 7,500. Wow. What is, how are they allowed to get get away with this? Like, well, because they claim that, oh, it'll be, it'll be mitigated. It'll be made up for with mitigation. But, of course, scientific studies over and over again since the 1980s have shown that mitigation generally does not work. It does not replace the natural wetlands. It just it's just a feel good thing that mm-hmm. makes things look okay on paper. Maui, what what a shame! And, and you know, forget about building in density or resiliency. I mean, we are just and I say we the, the state of Florida continues to take giant chomping bites out of its wetlands, out of its natural areas, as if this won't have any cost to bear down the road. Uh, everyone else in the world is talking about resiliency and sea level rise and climate change, except Florida, where it continues to be build, build, build. Houses, roads, pave it, concrete it, just keep the people coming here and the the, the just short money coming in. The um, Well, and, and one of the people I talked to, Marianne Gengenbach, who used to be with the DEP, said, you know, this really makes no sense. They're going to be spending tax dollars on building this interchange that's going to ruin the preserve that they spent tax dollars buying and building up. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's just a, a crazy thing to do. Well, and I was, uh, again, the figure who is the board chair at UF and runs this development company, uh, you know, he, he goes well beyond advocate for DeSantis, well beyond campaign contributor, uh, bordering on some sort of almost quasi cabinet uh, position mm-hmm. from, from what I, I gathered in your column. Yeah, uh, I, I I said that like Forrest Gump would say about Jenny that the two of them are like peas and carrots is how well they go along and and I suggested that you know I won every time he's referred to as an advisor you never see what it is he's advising him on so I, my guess is he's advising him that you know just keep the pedal to the metal on the growth machine and the heck with the consequences because yeah, that's certainly been the way things have worked out and I think it's staggering that his quote unquote advisory position goes unchallenged because this is not an elected official. As you mentioned before, this is just someone who let's call him a puppet master. Let's call DeSantis his stooge or his henchman carrying out his bidding. It's remarkable that his influence goes so far as, you know, ideas like him being an unelected advisor is not even challenged. You know, he's got the ear of the governor through the influence of his um, money and uh, he he wields that influence uh, pretty significantly. It appears. So it would appear. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we will keep an eye on that one, and it, it should be noted that there has been a great deal of public opposition yes. to this, the, the lowly voters. But that, of course, uh, has has not done much to derail this steamroller. But it, it is interesting, right? And then there's there's another good thing to talk about, which is they had a public hearing on this and. 400 people turned out and said, we don't want this. And we're mm-hmm. worried about the impact on the environment. We're worried about how this is going to change the character of this rural area that we love. And uh, we don't want anything bad to happen to our preserve. And, you know, maybe 60 people who were, were in favor of it. But from my review of the DOT records, at least some of those folks were people working for developers. Yeah. So it's their, they're voting with their pocketbooks and not necessarily with what's best for the public. No doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. FloridaPhoenix.com. Check that out. If you love the Florida landscape, one of the greatest landscape photographers in Florida history, undoubtedly, is Clyde Butcher. He appeared on a previous episode of Welcome to Florida. Check that out in the archives. And Clyde Butcher right now has an exhibition of his landscape photography, not only from Florida, but from across the country at the James Museum of Western and Wildlife Art in St. Petersburg, one of my favorite places in all of Florida. And Clyde Butcher's photography is on exhibit side by side with Ansel Adams' landscape photography. Certainly, we don't need to explain who Ansel Adams is to anyone. If you've seen a black and white photograph of Yellowstone, Yosemite, the Grand Tetons, chances are it was taken by (laughs) Ansel Adams. If it's one of those big uh, landscape format pictures, uh, so famous is Ansel Adams and his photography. Well, right now, through July 31st, 2022, at the James Museum of Western and Wildlife Art, right there in downtown St. Petersburg, you can see Clyde Butcher's photography side by side with, with Ansel Adams. James Museum of Western and Wildlife Art in St. Petersburg, open 10 to 5 daily, late nights until 8 o'clock on Tuesday. Check them out online at thejamesmuseum.org. And you really don't want to miss this because, I mean, Clyde's stuff is incredible. Ansel Adams' stuff, of course, is iconic. So the two of them together, what a show. 
Yeah. And if you are interested in a, in a great day trip, the James Museum right there, downtown St. Petersburg, so much uh, dining down there now, breweries, uh, boutiques, walking distance from the Dali Museum, walking distance from the Chihuly Collection, walking distance from the MFA St. Pete, walking distance from the St. Petersburg Pier. What a great uh, weekend getaway destination, St. Petersburg and the James Museum. Well, let's uh, cross the state and go to Martin County and Stewart. And uh, I should mention, Craig, I don't know that we've brought up Stewart on the podcast before, but one of my great connections to the state of Florida, my best friend is from Stewart in Martin County. We met in college and I visited him down in, in Stewart a number of times, but we, we go there on the Atlantic coast to talk about the houses of refuge. Tell us real quick what these were. Well, it's a, it's a very little known part of Florida history, but part of American maritime history for that matter. You know, the Florida coastline, was largely deserted uh, prior to World War II, and ships would wreck, and the sailors would have nowhere to go. They, if they survived the wreck, then they might die on the beach mm-hmm. because there was no one there to help them. And so, a predecessor of the Coast Guard came in and figured out a way to help them. I can't wait to talk to our guest about the one that remains, the only yeah, one that's yeah. still around. The one that remains isn't Stuart. There were 10 at the peak and they were spread out every so often along the Atlantic coast. And like Craig said, when there would be the regular shipwrecks for the few survivors who made it to shore to uh, help them and prevent them from you know, starving to death or becoming dehydrated, these uh, keepers would walk up and down the beach and keep an eye out for them. And we're going to talk to the House of Refuge Stuart, keeper of the house, Michael Phillips. Tell us a little bit about the the houses of refuge. How did they? What? When did they start? And how did they get started? In 1872, the Treasury Department formed the Life Saving Service, and it was under the auspice of the Treasury Department. And what they started to do was build houses of refuge all the way down the coast of the United States, especially concentrated in New England because there was so much shipping, not not people shipping, but freight. And when they got to the world-famous Georgia-Florida line, they ran into a real big problem, and the problem was nobody lived in Florida. <laughs> the population of Treasure Coast South, and, you know, figures get thrown around, this one, that one, this one, that one, this many people. My go-to figure is about 350 people in the entire state from Treasure Coast South. Oh, my. So This is is pre-bug spray and pre-air conditioning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is pre-bug spray, pre-air conditioning, pre-road. Yep. There, there is absolutely nothing in Florida, and nobody wants to be here. You know, <laughs> it's full of wild animals, it's full of disease, and of course, like I said, no roads, no way yeah. to get around. So what Director Kimball did, and this is in my imagination, but it works, he took his finger and he put it on the coast of Florida map about halfway down and said, this is where we're starting. <laughs> and it happened to be just north of here in a place called Bethel Creek, which is just a little south of Vero. So that was house number one. House number two was Gilbert's Bar. And it's about 30 miles 
between the two houses. Then there's 30 miles down to the next one and the next one and the next one. And they built five going south first because there were fewer people. And the chances of somebody washing up on the beach and actually being able to survive was about zilch. <laughs> First of all, well, you're going to wash up on a barrier island. Yeah, yeah. There's no water. There's absolute. There's no fresh water on a barrier island, and you got 72 hours. Well, this was a game they were playing. They build the house a refuge. They put a keeper in the house, and they say to him, "You are responsible for 15 miles north and 15 miles south. Walk the beach and offer aid." Wow. Walk. Yeah. And there's a reason that they could had to walk. Number one, you can't bring a horse onto a barrier island. A horse goes through about 35 gallons of water a day, and there is no fresh water. Yeah. These houses are getting their fresh water off of the roof and into oh, a cistern. Oh, it was nasty. It was really <laughs> nasty. And you know, the cistern at the House of Refuge holds about 350 barrels of water. Now, the trick is, can 350 barrels of water last through dry season? Mm -hmm. To the best of my knowledge, it did. Oh, boy. I've never, I have no reports of them actually running out of water. Running out of everything else? Yes. <laughs> because when the, house, when the house at Gilbert's Bar was built, the nearest town is Titusville. Titusville is 120 miles upriver. Wow. Now, imagine if you were the keeper of the House of Kibis Cane. How far was the nearest town? The nearest town is Titusville. Yikes. These people literally were in the middle of nowhere without a really good support system and subject to the Florida weather because everything takes place on the water. Once in a blue moon, there's a government office in Titusville, and they send a boat down the river. And the boat's going down the river for two reasons. Number one, it's going to resupply the house with non-perishables for 10 people for 25 days or 25 people for 10 days, depending mm -hmm. on how, what kind of crowd you've got. The second reason they're coming down the river is they want to make sure that there's a keeper in that house. Yeah, I yeah. would imagine. I would imagine absentee. You, the absentee rate was pretty high. <laughs> and, and yeah, the first guy that took over the house at Gilbert's Bar was single, mm -hmm. and he didn't see a person for something like three months. And when he saw a person, he was like, "A single person cannot do this." Mm -hmm. And he was 100 percent right. I mean, you know, you can only talk to the dog for so long. Yeah. And it just, you know, these, these guys were just the bravest of the brave. And their wives were even braver because they're young people. They're strong people. He, he looks like a mountain man. You know, and she comes along and Lord have mercy, she gets pregnant. Hmm. There is no midwife. Yeah. There is yeah. no town. You know, if dad's out on the beach looking for shipwreck survivors, the oldest kid's going to play catch. And that's exactly the way they did it. And it wasn't like there weren't a lot of kids born in these houses. Unfortunately, infant death rate was really high. 
imagine it would, but, yeah. Yeah, it would be. And then there's this added problem, and I always, when I'm, when I'm doing a tour, I say to people, now imagine you have three children under the age of seven. You can't let them go out and play because there's a bear living in the woods who's going to look at this kid and go, looks like lunch to me. There are panthers. There's a gazillion snakes. And you can you imagine a toddler? Go outside and play. I wonder what ever happened to him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the drowning risk and just how thick the brush would have been at that point. You know, for, forget oh, about absolutely. animal predation. You know, the, the opportunity for a five-year-old to go wandering off into the palmetto and the uh, scrub and get utterly turned around. And he could be 200 yards from the house and have no idea where he is. So wow. how did they, how did they recruit people right. to, to do this? How did, did they have like a recruiting drive or off from bonuses or uh, exclusive use of waterfront property? Well, actually, mm-hmm. Great views. Actually, <laughs> you're, you're right after the Civil War. You know, the Civil War mm-hmm. is over, but the entire country is under reconstruction. And they will offer you $40 a month, all the fish you can catch, a house on the beach in the middle of nowhere, and we're not under reconstruction. So it's really interesting when you look at list of keepers, the different parts of the country that they came from, and some of the parts that they came from had been literally destroyed. Yeah. And so let's get out of the way to start over. Yeah. It was a way to start over. It didn't have very many requirements. You had to be able to read and write, and you had to be, like I said, they, they were strong. When you see a, a picture of a keeper from 1870s, you know, it's like, oh, my God. You know, he could carry a person seven or eight miles, <laughs> and several of them actually get- did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happens if you come up on somebody who's got two broken legs? Good point. Well, you fire them and carry them across your shoulders, and you start walking back to the house for refuge. Mm -hmm. Then when you get there and you patch him up, you've got another problem. How are you going to get rid of him? Mm -hmm. (laughs) There were two ways. One, and obviously if they were hurt, they would stay at the house of refuge until that once in a while boat came down from from titusville but the other way was i will give you directions and water and hardtack to go up to bethel creek who will give you directions to go up to malabar who will give you directions to go walk out walk yeah (laughs) but here's 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 the gig most of these shipwreck survivors were teenagers, 16, 17 years old. They had been at sea since they were 10. Wow. And you tell, you tell a kid from Spain who wants to go home to his girlfriend, I'll give you directions. And they'll go, yeah, give it to me. I'm on my way. <laughs> and so they would actually do it. That kid's not going to speak English, though. He's never going to have set foot in Florida. I mean, this is going to be a, a different world to him. How regularly were these ships wrecking and, and survivors washing ashore that the government felt it necessary to place these outposts here? 
often enough that that little state of Rhode Island had something like eight houses of refuge. I mean, you can spit across Rhode Island, and here it has eight <laughs> houses of refuge. Yeah. And I just recently, it, it was, this is a wonderful experience. I met a guy who wrote a book about the life-saving service, and he was from Rhode Island. And so it kind of concentrated on, on Rhode Island, but he gave me a copy of the book and I read it. And I was like, oh my God, they had shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck. And the weather off the coast of Rhode Island and the reefs and the rocks are three times worse than Florida, which I think is horrendous. Mm-hmm. So, you know, did it happen a lot? It happened a lot. And it happened a whole lot on the coast of Florida where there was nothing. And, you know, it was like they opened the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar. And uh, some eight or nine months later, somebody shows up on the front porch and says, we're caught on the reef at Jupiter. I was the only person who could swim, so I came to get you. Off they go. And they go down to Jupiter. And here's this floundering sailing vessel, and they rescued everybody who was on it, where nine months before, there would have been no one for this guy to go to. Mm-hmm. What's miraculous about the system is it worked, <laughs> and it worked really well. <laughs> did, did I, you know, I think and, I read, I read that, that at one point, and I, it, I don't remember if this was at Gilbert's Bar or not, but. There were two shipwrecks in the same place in twenty four within twenty four hours. Yes, yes. The George's Valentine ran aground and broke apart right in front of the house. Wow! <laughs> and there were uh, seven survivors. The Cosma Casaldo, which was from Spain, hit the reef, broke apart. There were 15 survivors, and that was a mile and a half up the beach from the House of Refuge. Well, that hey, those people lucked out. Mm-hmm. The Georgia's Valentine wreck is still right there off the uh, coast, and people dive that regularly, correct? Oh, yeah, totally. Usually August, September, when the ocean is nice and calm, you know, although I saw some out there the other day, but. It's not very far offshore. It's easily accessible. It's not always visible. I've had people phone me from their boat. (laughs) Where's the Georgian Valentine? And I'm like, you're right over top of it. We don't see anything. Guess what? The ocean floor moves. (laughs) (laughs) When did these start to fade away from their necessity and the the reason for which they were were built? They never did. But in 1915, the life-saving service is disbanded and the whole system is given to the Coast Guard. And Gilbert's Bar became a Coast Guard station. 207. And now we have, you know, eight or nine men, a rescue boat, a Lyle gun, a breaches buoy. We have equipment to get people off of boats and to the shore. And this is a this is a big game changer mm-hmm. because Mr. Keeper couldn't go in the water. 
I mean, if he drowned, who's going to do it? Nobody. Right. There's nobody there to do it. Yeah. So when you when you get the Coast Guard, and you know they're in their rescue boat, and off they go, it 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 it's just completely different because if they see a boat that's on fire, they can go out and help. Mm-hmm. Where before you just stood on the beach and swim, swim faster than the shark yeah. behind you. Yeah. you know. yeah. Here's some marshmallows. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> now I heard a story. I don't know if it's true that. Uh, there was a guy from, I think, Finland or Norway who had washed up and was saved by the daughters of one of the keepers. And he went home, but then he came back and married one of the daughters. Mm. Yes, his name was Axel Johansson. Oh, wow. And Axel, Axel was indeed a shipwreck survivor. He was Norwegian and um, showed up at Chester Shoals where he had been rescued knocked on the door, looked at the keeper and said, I'm going to marry your daughter, Kate. <laughs> and he did. And he became the keeper at the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar. They used to transfer, you know, I'd be here for a while and then I'll go here for a while. And anyway, he was somewhere around Fort Lauderdale and he hears that they're going to go Coast Guard. So Axel joins the Coast Guard and he and Kate lived at the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar. He wanted to come home. That was his favorite place. And they lived there with, as I say, 10 teenage men for a couple of years before he retired. So you did your homework. That story's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you hear you hear these stories that sound outlandish, but you know, in Florida, often they end up being true. So <laughs> Often people say to me, well, you keep telling us no one lives here. What about the Native Americans? And I just look at them and I go, we're after three Seminole Wars. There are no Native Americans except <laughs> for the Seminoles. And they're way down southwest in the Everglades. And they could care less what goes on on the coast. You know, and it's like, really? I never knew that. Yeah, people don't understand how how isolated and, and um, just empty this state was for years and years and years. Because it's it's so different the now. State doesn't, yeah, the state doesn't really populate until the railroad is built, and wherever the railroad stops, from that point on is wilderness. And it wasn't until eh, 1893, 1894, that the railroad got to Potsdam. They changed the name to Stewart, and life at the house of Gilbert's Bar becomes doable because there's a store there's a doctor you know before yeah. that it's like oh my god what were these people thinking and how did like they do it? Yeah. yeah yeah it is how has gilbert's bar managed to outlast the other houses of refuge because it's the last one of the 10 that we had here in florida i believe it's the location it sits up on the rocks and i don't know if you've ever been the house or not but it's just high enough above the water and there seems to be a low spot on each side that when the surf when the ocean meets the indian river in the parking lot the water is running around the house and so it sort of saved itself the other thing that kept it from being torn down was it was a naval observation station during world war ii And at the end of the war, 
the Navy decommissioned all of the houses of refuge. They were naval observation stations. War's over. We don't need them. Now they become war surplus. And what does the Navy do with its surplus? They sell it. Well, most of the houses sat on prime property. Mm-hmm. So developers bought them. But the house at Gilbert's Bar, nobody wanted because you couldn't get to it. <laughs> In 1945, Hutchinson Island was undeveloped. You know, it was nothing but mangrove swamp and, and no road, no bridge. Mm-hmm. And so it just sat there. And because you couldn't get to it, nobody really bothered it. And then finally, about 1953, Martin County buys the House of Refuge and 16 and a half acres of beach for about 160 bucks. Wow. And they put a fence around it because someday we'll make this a museum. Well, the Seroptimists of Stewart, along about 1955, started to restore the house getting ready to turn it into a museum. And it's been a museum ever since. My understanding is that it is closed right now. However, are, is, is that true? And are there plans to reopen it to the public soon? I hate to tell you this. We're closed. Nobody is more disappointed than me. And I don't have an opening date. Now, I was talking to the county yesterday. They haven't been able to work on the house. Lack of funding. That's coming up. And they're going to come back, hopefully June 1st. But that's a double-edged sword because then we're going into hurricane season. (laughs) And it's going to rain every day. (laughs) And it's like, so realistically, it'll be after the summer. What work needs to be done to the place? Well, over the past two or three years, we have had extraordinarily bad, bad weather. and. Literally, the surf pounded the paint off the house and soaked all of the wood that's on the porch. And we started this project, we, they started this project in August of last year, where they came in and they painted the house. And the next day, the paint started peeling off the house because (laughs) the wood was so wet that they didn't, it had to be dry. It could stick, yeah. And so they tented. We had dehumidifiers. One of them was like a two-ton dehumidifier. And they started to dry the house out. In the process of drying the house out, they also dried out the boards on the porch. So now we have the house painted, but the the porch has to be replaced. And, you know, I, I was I was talking to the guy from the county yesterday, and he told me what the cost of replacing the porch is. And the biggest problem with that is they can't get the lumber. Well, because of all these embargoes and problems between countries, we're not getting supplied. And is is, is there the a way for people to, want, to to donate to the uh, to the rebuilding or anything? They like can that? donate to the historic. They can donate to the Historical Society of Martin County and designate. This money is to for the House of Refuge. You can do that at hsmc-fl.com, Historical Society, Martin County. 
fl.com. Michael Phillips, Keeper of the House, House of Refuge, and Stuart has been our guest. Thank you so much for your insight today, and we look forward to the day when uh, you can uh, open your doors back up and welcome folks there on the beach. Thank you, and you are welcome. I don't know why we just have one House of Refuge now. I think we need quite a few, because I think a lot of people would want to seek refuge there from some of the stuff that's been going on in Florida lately. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that opportunity, well, back post civil war may not have been so great, but the opportunity now to get away from it all, they could uh, <laughs> rent that thing out as a bed and breakfast at $900 a night, probably. If they what a great to. idea. <laughs> well, if Welcome you want to, to yeah, if you want to get away from it all, how about this? Uh, the Mayaka elephant ranch. Now this is a, a new attraction it's actually in Manatee County, but our friends at visitsarasota.com put this uh, in front of me because the easiest way to get there is from Sarasota. And, and uh, Craig, you've been to Mayaka City. You know how, <laughs> how remote uh, yeah. that is. I've been to greater Mayaka City. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, the Mayaka Elephant Ranch is technically in Mayaka City. It was founded in 2018. So recently by a Florida Gulf Coast University graduate, this is like 30 miles outside of downtown Sarasota, but it's worth the drive and worth looking into. It's a nonprofit conservation center focused on guest education around elephants. Reservation only. These are intimate elephant encounters uh, overseen by guided and guided by professional caregivers, but you can get right up close with the elephants. They've got African elephants, Asian elephants. They offer all different kind of experiences to get right up close with the animals. You can learn more at Mayaka, and there's two Ks in Mayaka. So when you're looking this stuff up, remember that. MayakaElephantRanch.org. On Instagram, Mayaka Elephant Ranch, and on Facebook, Mayaka Elephant Ranch. If you've got kids or you are an animal lover, when you're down in Sarasota, take the trip out to Mayaka City. Now, reservation only, so don't don't roll up on these folks and expect to get in there like it's a, a, a zoo or something. That's that's not how it works. They keep numbers down. It's a conservation education facility. So look them up online. Make your reservation first, MayakaElephantRanch.org. And to plan your next Get away for a weekend or your next week-long vacation. Visit Sarasota.com. And thanks to the folks at Visit Sarasota for sponsoring the podcast. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida.